Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Okay, tonight I am going to finish the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) So I feel like, um, I mean, we have kind of finished it, but I'm just sort of like winding it up. So at the beginning of last year, I thought, you know, that it would be really good for us as a church to dive into some of the teachings of Jesus. And so I thought the Sermon on the Mount would be a wonderful place to do that, like just kind of to lock us into a section of Scripture and do a deep dive. And the intention was to just do it for 2019. And here we are at the end of 2020 and we're just finishing it. Some of that is COVID, but some of that is um, just the way we've meandered and kind of found our way through this. I mean, hopefully, you know, this won't be the last time you ever hear about the Sermon on the Mount. Hopefully you're reading it in your own, you know, time when you read the Bible, and I'm sure we'll hear sermons on it again. But I just, we've made it to the end, everyone, so well done. If you, and if, so if you've actually just come to church in the last little while, this is the end of our sermon series. Uh, They're all on the podcast, if you ever feel like, you know, listening to a heck of a lot of sermons on the Sermon on the Mount, um, it'd be just quicker to read it yourself um, than to listen to all of that. But no, it's been, I've really enjoyed it. Um, and I think I find myself more and more at home in the teachings of Jesus and more and more wanting to live like the way that he called us to live. And so I've really enjoyed um, preaching um, along with others as we've gone through this. But this is the last one. And really what I want to do Um, this afternoon is rather, like what we've done over the last two years is taken an almost logical section by section and done quite a deep dive into some of the things that Jesus is talking about. And instead of starting with the Beatitudes, which is where the actual Sermon on the Mount starts, we started after the Beatitudes and have circled back around to them because I think that they're so magnificent and that they were worth doing, not right at the beginning, but Um, at the end. Uh, But what I want to do this afternoon is give us a chance to take a real, like, you know, we've dived deep into the Beatitudes and gone kind of like looking at details. But I want us to like do the opposite, which is take a step back and look at this section of Scripture from a wider angle to kind of just remind us about why it's so wonderful and to hear Um, the invitation of Jesus as he speaks to us um, in that time. So that's what we're going to do. We're not going to look at any kind of specific part of the Sermon on the Mount, but just the whole thing as a whole. And so before, like, as we start to do that, I want to remind you that the four Gospels we have in our Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, they're not dear diary. Today, Jesus and I went to Capernaum and found a blind man. Like they are not a a day-by-day diary account written by one of the followers of Jesus. That's not what they are. They're not even biography. They're not biography of the life of Jesus. That's not what these four gospels are. These four pieces of incredible scripture are like, so well-crafted gospels. They are designed to intentionally 
communicate something about who Jesus is. So these writers, if you just take that it was Matthew, was Mark, was Luke and was John, they, they were so intentional with what they chose to write down, how they chose to write it down, in what order they chose to write it down because they had a very specific message that they wanted to communicate to the people who were going to listen to and read what they had written. Now, we often forget that when we just pick up our Bibles and read it because most of them are chronological. So it feels like you're reading a biography or a dear diary and then the next day we went here and then this happened and then next week we did this and then, oh, Jesus died. Like, but that, that's actually not how these authors wrote them. And I, and I think the more you understand about the craft of how these Gospels were put together, I feel like for me, the more I am in awe of Scripture and the more I love um, the words that have been written down because they cause me to fall more in love with Jesus. And so, you know, when Matthew was writing his Gospel and he includes the Sermon on the Mount, he is incredibly intentional as to why he does that, where he puts it and what he's trying to tell us. Now, just if you want some evidence for what, why I'm saying all of this, we get a, very, a much clearer picture of the intention of some of the Gospel writers um, in the book of Mark. Um, at the very beginning, the very first verse of chapter 1 in the book of Mark, you get the precise reason why Mark has written his Gospel. He, like, straight up, he's like, this is why I'm writing this stuff down. And he's like this, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, Son of God. That is like an intention statement right at the beginning. Mark is not trying to write a dear diary or a biography of Jesus. He is writing to convince you that Jesus is the Messiah and He is the Son of God. Now for everybody who listened to that or heard that or read that back in the day, they knew that those words were very inflammatory and political. It would be the same as today writing down, um, in, this is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and He has come to make humanity great again. And everyone who read that or heard that would know they are pushing back at Mr. Donald Trump. Fast forward 2,000 years and the world has forgotten make America great again and all we're left with is, oh, Jesus came to make humanity great again. That's a nice statement, isn't it? But for Mark to call Jesus the Son of God was so political and inflammatory because all the Caesars were divinely um, the sons of God and had immaculate conceptions. That's how they um, just held their power in the empire. And so when Mark comes in and writes, no, Jesus is the Son of God, he's making a direct claim against Caesar and the Caesars. So we miss that, but that's what Mark's doing. So all the way through the book of Mark, it is political and it is full of undertones of things we miss 
but you can, you can learn. So it makes a lot more sense. John does the same thing, not at the beginning, but more at the end. And in the book of John, there we go, it's coming back. John chapter 20, if it stays, it's fine if it doesn't, I'll read it out. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So in other words, John had a whole bunch of stuff he could have written down and he picked and chose what he wanted in his book. So there's stuff we don't know that happened. Um, what, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That is why John wrote every word in his gospel, so that we would know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and not just know it, but we would have life in his name. And then later on in John chapter 21, verse 25, John writes, I love, this is the very last verse of the book of John, and I think it's the most um, anticlimactic, hilarious verse to finish off this magnificent gospel. And John's like, I don't know, I mean, this is how I imagine him writing it. Jesus did many other things as well, but... <clears throat> If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have enough room for all the books that would be made. Like it's just this like, John is, the, the gospel of John is different to the others and it's one of the most magnificent pieces of theological literature available. And then he ends it with this, well, I suppose if we just kept writing, the world would full of books. It's just amazing. So they're so intentional with the way that they've crafted these things and you know, how they've put it together and why they've done what they've done. And so when we look at this Sermon on the Mount that is written by Matthew, we have the ability to approach it from this kind of like grand sweeping understanding of why did Matthew write this? Why did he put it right at the beginning? Why did he use the words that he did? What is he trying to tell us? Beyond the details of everything that Jesus said, what can the, the swept back view of this give us like an appreciation and understanding for? And some of the things we know about Matthew is that he is the most Jewish of all the writers of the four Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Matthew explicitly writes to a Jewish audience. So Math, the book of Matthew is full of Old Testament references and lots of Jewish cultural things. Now, of course, because we're not Jewish. We miss a lot of that. But the original readers, again, would have picked this up. But, but Matthew is one of the most Jewish writers. And he is the only gospel writer who has the Sermon on the Mount. Luke has a version of this, but he writes it very differently. And it's in Luke chapter 6. And instead of... And Jesus went up the mountain and sat down. Luke writes, he went down with them and stood on a level place. And then he gives a, like a, a 20 verse, 20 verse, 29 verse version of the Sermon on the Mount, which many of you are maybe hoping I'd done Luke's version <laughs> instead of Matthew's. I think I did, I did the mass. I think it's like, yeah, 29 verses of the, the Sermon on the Plains, it's often called in Luke, compared to 106 verses of Matthew's version on the mountain. Similar content. You read it and you can put, I could do that one, Nick. I could, couldn't I? No. You can put them side by side and realise that, wow, this is using, you know, Luke's got a few Beatitudes. I think he's only got four. Like it's, it's just same, same, but different. And you, so the question I sort of think is, what is Matthew trying to do 
What is he trying to do with this? Beyond the details of the words, what is Matthew trying to do with this Sermon on the Mount? Why did he, why did he write it? Why did he condense this, these teachings of Jesus? Did it happen like that? Was there actually a Sermon on the Mount? Or was this a pull together of lots of different teachings of Jesus that Matthew's trying to communicate with a specific purpose and so he has Jesus go up a mountain and deliver this with certain languages? This is, all these questions, we, I, makes me love the Bible. So anyway, what I'd like to do is, you know, just if we could think about the Sermon on the Mount in, a, in its dramatic literature, like theatre. If we could imagine, just for a minute, let's, re, let's think about the Sermon on the Mount as if it was theatre and, and ask the question like, what is Matthew trying to do? And so what we have in chapter four is, see if you can listen to what I'm saying and see if you can pick up any resonance with anything else that you can think of in scripture. We have Jesus and he comes out of spending time in the wilderness. So he's been in the wilderness, he comes out of the wilderness. Now, then he performs some signs, some miracles, some signs. Large crowds follow him and he calls some disciples. He goes up a mountain and then he lays out a way of life for those who are in front of him. Like, who does, who does that sound like to you? Can you think? Israel and the Exodus and Moses and the Ten Boxes. What does Moses do? Comes out of the wilderness, goes to Egypt, performs some signs to Pharaoh. Oh, here's my stick, now it's a snake. Here's my, you know. Then he... People are drawn towards Moses. Then Moses goes up the mountain, gets the law and delivers it to the people. And what's the intention for the people to go to? Promised land. And so I think, like, when you think of it like this, like you're looking at the theatre that Matthew is creating, he's, he's intentionally causing all his listeners to parallel what Jesus is doing with what Moses has done. That's what he's doing. He's wanting us to make the connection that this is an Exodus story, but it's an Exodus story like you have not heard before. And the Exodus story is always about moving from slavery to freedom. It's about going from enslavement to the promised land. That's what the Exodus is. And Matthew is crafting this so that we see the connections as Jesus is the one who's going to take us from slavery to the promised land. And then we get to, you know, he starts with his, you know, eight Beatitudes. And actually before that, let me read out this quote from, from Richard Raw. This is a great one that connects Jesus and Moses together. Richard Raw says, There are two ways of being a prophet. One is to tell the enslaved that they can be free. This is the difficult path of Moses. The second is to tell those who think they are free that they are in fact enslaved. This is the even more difficult path of Jesus. And I, I, I see in Jesus and his prophetic 
you know, statements that we see in the Sermon on the Mount that he is pushing us to realise that some of our behaviours and some of our ways of thinking and some of our ways that we think this is okay. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Oh, I'm free. I don't commit adultery. I'm so free. But I tell you, do not even look at a woman lustfully because if you do, you're enslaved. You think you're free. But I want to say that you're enslaved and I have freedom for you and you exodus to come through. So we see this kind of prophetic path of Jesus being connected with Moses. And it becomes even more amazing when, when we can kind of see that as Jesus starts his teaching with the blessed are the poor in spirit, that that blessed, it's always tripped up people in its translation because it's just a word that doesn't, it's not easily translated for us. And so we get blessed are, we get some people translated as blissful, blissful are or lucky are. But actually one of the most literal ways to translate this is, you are in the right place if you are poor in spirit. You are in the right place if you are mourning. You are in the right place if you are merciful. You are in the right place if you are peacemakers, persecuted. Like you go through the list. Jesus is not speaking about a list of things we should become. He's not speaking about a list of things we need to do. He's inviting us to live in a new land because that's the resonance with Moses because he was taking people from slavery to the promised land. So Jesus' listeners, as they're listening to it and as Matthew's writing it and the readers and, and listeners of Matthew's gospel, they would have heard the Beatitudes as an invitation to a new place to live. It's totally resonant with promised land um, imagery. And see, the Israelites, I, I think about those people sitting up on that mountainside listening to Jesus and seeing all these connections that they're making to their Exodus story and to Passover and to Jesus. He's saying these things and all of a sudden, why is he talking about promised land language? Why are we hearing this idea of promised land? Because everybody listening on that hillside that day they already had an imagination and a dream and a hope for what promised land looked like. They, you know, the Jews had a hugely robust understanding of promised land. They, they knew that they were going to be in the promised land if they were living in the land that God had said was theirs. They knew that if that was the case. They'd also know that they were in the promised land if nobody who wasn't in was bothering them. That was their idea of promised land. Like, this land will be ours and no one will be bothering us. They would know that they were in the promised land if there was a Jewish king on the throne in Jerusalem and he was good. They knew that they were living in the promised land if life was good and prosperous. If it rained when it was supposed to rain and it didn't rain when it was not supposed to rain. They knew that that was promised land. They knew they were in the promised land when, they, when things were like the land was flowing with milk and honey and there were grapes around the size of your head. Like the Jews had an imagination for what this promised land was like. It's richly embedded in their history and their story. And then they hear this strange rabbi on the mountainside using the same language, the same promised land language, but he's not talking about grapes 
and milk and honey. In fact, there's none of that in sight. There's no king on the throne in Jerusalem. They are occupied by the Romans. They are enslaved in their own land. They can't even farm their own land without paying taxes to those that are... Like, there is nothing about their current location that suggests hashtag blessed. And Jesus comes before them and says, you want to know what living in the promised land is? You're in the right place if you're poor in spirit. It makes, for them listening, it would have been like mind snap. Like this, how could this be possible? Because they imagined, their big hope and their big dream was that the Messiah was going to come back and make it the promised land again. He was going to make Israel great again. <laughs> that was what the Messiah was going to do. And that wasn't happening for them. And they're living in this strange place. And Jesus comes along and he says, you're in the right place. You're in the promised land if you're merciful, you're poor in spirit, you hunger and thirst for justice. It's, it's odd. It's odd for them hearing it and it's odd for us hearing it because I imagine that if we were to go around the room and I said to you, what is your idea of hashtag blessed, hashtag promised land? Like, we would all answer that not with, oh, well, when I'm poor in spirit and I'm at the end of my rope and I just feel like, oh, that's not how we would answer it. We would have our own metrics for what promised land looks like. And Jesus comes along and he completely subverts all of that and he challenges their notion and he's inviting them to move from where they are to a new place. Let me just, do I have another quote up there, Dan? Let me have a look. I have a feeling. That one, here. Gregory Boyle says, Scripture scholars contend that the original language of the Beatitudes should not be rendered as blessed are the single-hearted or blessed are the peacemakers or blessed are those who struggle for justice. Greater precision in translation would say you're in the right place if you are single-hearted or work for peace. The Beatitudes is not a spirituality after all. It's a geography. It tells us where to stand. And I think this is what we get as we zoom back from, you know, the Sermon on the Mount. If we see it as a whole, we see it as Jesus inviting us to move from where we are to a new place with him. The whole thing is an invitation to a greater imagination of what life in the kingdom looks like. It's not about how you can be a better person. It's not how you can be a better Christian. It's not how you can get brownie points with God. It's not how you get ticks of approval or feel good about yourself. It's Jesus standing in front of you with his arms outstretched saying, do you want to come with me to the promised land? Because what you think is freedom could possibly be slavery and I'll show you what real freedom looks like. Come and be poor in spirit. Come and be merciful. Come and mourn. Come and hunger and thirst for justice. Come and be a peacemaker. He's, it's like an invitation to a new place to be. And we get, we get this sense as we kind of look at the very beginning of Matthew 5 and in the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, which is, oh yeah, we're moving from... And I really wanted that to say from there to here, but I didn't make it and I just stole it off the internet. And you can't, I don't know how to change things like that because I'm not skilled. So 
There you go. Anyway, nice graphic. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this. This is the theatre. This is the wonderful theatre that we get of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, can you imagine it? Jesus seeing the crowds. He goes up on a mountainside and he sat down, taking the place of authority. That was why he sat down. Why did he sit down? Was he lazy? His legs not? No. Rabbi sat down because it was a position of authority and then everyone would sit in front of them and they would teach. So he's taking a position of authority. And he began to teach them. Then we have the whole Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> this is the short version. And then at the very end, at, like he finishes his teaching and then it says, when Jesus came down the mountain, large crowds followed him. Like the whole Sermon on the Mount is an invitation from Jesus to number one, go up the mountain and sit at Jesus' feet and learn some things about freedom and the way to live. And then once you've heard that way of life, that call of Jesus, those challenging words that are spoken, another invitation sits in front of you, which is this. Do you want to come with me? Not me, him, like Jesus. I'm being, do you want to follow Jesus? It's like these two invitations sandwich this whole Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to come up? Do you want to come up and be free? Do you want to come up and get rid of the things that enslave you? I'll talk to you about how to be free. And then once you've heard maybe what it's going to look like, do you want to come with me? Do you want to come down the mountain and follow me? And I feel like I always need to be reminded that the reality of this spiritual life is always that Jesus stands in front of us with arms outstretched and says, do you want to follow me? Like it is always an invitation. It is never dictation. It is never like harassment. It is never condemnation. It is never you must. It's, ne- it's never like forced upon us because that's just a new form of slavery. If you are ever feeling trapped and forced and condemned in your spiritual life, there is something amiss because the truth of the spiritual life is always an ongoing journey towards do you want to be free? Come with me. Following Jesus should always feel like life and freedom. That's the kingdom of heaven. And that's what Jesus outlines for us in this Sermon on the Mount. And I think that's what Matthew's trying to do. He's trying to get us to see, hey, this Jesus is the new Moses and He is here to take you from slavery to freedom. Do you want to come? Do you want to come? And Jesus would be saying the same thing to you this afternoon. He'd be saying the same thing to you tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon. And every day as you draw near to Jesus, it will always be, I want to show you what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. Do you want to be free? Come follow me. Come and find your rest in me. Come and I will loose the chains that keep you down and I will set you free. It's always the invitation in front of us. And the question that we get to answer every time we sense this invitation from Jesus is, do we want to go? I often think when I think about the theatre of this whole 
passage and I think about what was going on and I try and put myself in, in the position of some of the people around who had heard these stories about this new rabbi who seems to have this radical teaching and he's, he's doing signs and miracles. And I, you know, because I'm a woman and I'm a mother and I'm a live in a house, I imagine myself as the same kind of person. I'm never a disciple because I'm not a man and I don't fish. So I'm like always, I don't know, a woman. And I wonder to myself, I think if I was going about my daily Tuesday afternoon things, if I'm baking my bread and sweeping my house, I don't know, doing the things you do in first century Palestine, and I had heard about this rabbi, would I be a part of the crowd? Would I? Would I be hungry to hear the teaching? Would I be hungry enough for God to lay down my broom and my pegs and my chicken and my children and I don't know what else? And, and would I be sitting on the mountainside? Would I? Would you be sitting on the mountainside? Would, would you be wanting to hear about this? Would you be drawn to this message of this man about this kingdom of God that sounds like freedom but looks really weird because it's not hashtag blessed? Or would you in your own heart be kind of like, oh, I don't think I can go? Like That's a very important question to bring in your heart before God. How hungry are you for words of life? How hungry are you for God? Would you have been sitting on the grass on that mountainside? Or would you have thought to yourself with a bit of cynicism and embedded disappointment and hard-heartedness, oh, here we go, another rabbi, I'll probably end up crucified in a few years' time, I'm just going to bake my bread this afternoon. Like, there's always a tension that goes in our own lives between open-hearted desire for God and disappointed, induced, hard-hearted cynicism. And the invitation that always every day lies before us is, do you want to come and listen? Do you want to draw near? Now, Jesus is with us wherever we answer that question. That's the beauty of the incarnate Son of God. But the question and the invitation always lies in front of us. And then, of course, once we're sitting on the mountain and we're listening to these words of Jesus, we're listening to these challenging like things that this person is saying and we're thinking, is this possible? Is this way of life? Something is stirring in my heart, but do I want to do I want to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do I want to sign up for persecution? <laughs> do I want to do these things? Do I want to take things to a deeper level? The invitation is then, will I instead, like I could go back the mountain, down the mountain and go back to my house. And that was a nice afternoon. I heard some really nice things that this strange man in a, you know, cloak said. Or will I hear the call of the invitation to live in a new place and want to follow after? Like, that's an invitation that lies in front of us too. Like, ah, do we want to go deeper with what Jesus offers in front of us? Because I always feel like Jesus stands in front of us, open-handed invitation. And he would say to us, I see where you're at. I see it. I see where you're at. I see where your heart is at. I see where your life is at. I see what troubles you. 
there's another way. You don't have to live like this. Do you want to come follow me? Jesus says that to us if we have ears to hear and open hearts to understand. And it's always the call out of slavery and into freedom. And it's always an invitation, never an imposition. And this is the beauty of the gentleness of our God. That in every gritty, hard-hearted, stubborn, pride-filled, exhausted, lost place, we find ourselves stuck in Jesus always comes before us and holds out his hand and says, come follow me. And so when we read through these Beatitudes and we see this resonant language of Exodus and Moses and promised land and freedom and out of slavery, we know that every single one of these initial statements, these Beatitudes, is an invitation from slavery to freedom. Do you want to come? And so I've got a list of where we can go. Thanks, Dan. This is like, this is my version of the list from self-reliance, independence and self-assuredness to poor in spirit and being at the end of our rope, from blind to our own sin and numbing our own pain to mourning and lamenting and repenting, from the slavery to aggressive, dominant, ego-driven lifestyle to meek, gentle, subversive strength, from indifferent to suffering and self-absorbed with our own life, to hungering and thirsting for justice in a world made right, from judgmentalism and vengeful and revenge and tit for tat and I'm going to get you, to mercy and compassion and forgiveness, from being manipulative and cynical and hard of heart to being pure in heart and clean of heart and mind from being people who create or maintain divisions and polarising opinions and putting us and them in boxes and they're out and we're in to peacemaking, bridge building and reconciliation. From avoiding the cost of love and even sometimes persecuting and oppressing others to, to, to being willing to accept persecution and laying down our lives and dying to ourselves. These are our movements and they are not boxes we tick. They are not brownie points you earn. They are not eight steps on the ladder to maturity as a Christian and when you've reached number eight, you have made it. They are none of that. It's an invitation to go from being here to being there. And I feel like in my life, I'm always somewhere moving between those things. If you could see the state of my heart at times, you'd be thinking, wow, I think you've got a bit of movement to make towards peacemaking and pure in heartness. If you could see the ways I like to, you know, like make my life my own and be in control and have, you know, not have to rely on God because quite thank you very much, I have it sorted myself. You would be thinking, wow, there's a place of freedom over here, Carol, and it's called Poor in spirit, utterly reliant on God. Know that you don't need to hold it all together. Like there is, all of this is an invitation to move from one place of living to another. And we're never going to like make it probably. But Jesus is always there. Do you want to come with me? You don't have to live like this. I've got freedom for you. You want to come?
You want to come with me? You want to follow me? Come and I'll show you how to live. It's always an invitation. And so if you kind of remember nothing about the Sermon on the Mount, what I would love for you to remember is if you, whenever you come across that heading at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, because it'll be there, it's got headings now, the Sermon on the Mount. I want you to think this is Jesus' grand invitation to me, to freedom. And then you read all of that message as seeing it as your movement from slavery to freedom and Jesus is your way. And he is going to take you there. You just have to trust in him. This is the beauty of this, this thing that Matthew has done with these teachings of Jesus. Go up the mountain, listen to this way of life, this promised land where you want to come follow me. And if you are familiar with the Exodus story and the Israelite story and the wandering in the wilderness and the journey to the promised land, you will be comforted by the fact that historically the path of discipleship has always included getting it wrong, building golden calves, whinging, complaining, saying, why are we not there? Are we there yet? Why am I? Like the story of the Israelites in the promise, like on the journey to the promised land is our story too. You're in good company if you're struggling. You're in good company if you're trying to figure out how to get there. And Jesus is your map. And so just as we finish, um, I'd like to just give you a bit of a moment to just be with Jesus, I guess. Because beyond anything I can say to you, it just really matters what Jesus wants to say to you tonight. Um, So why don't you close your eyes? Let's just close your eyes and we'll, we'll, we'll come and we'll be with Jesus. I want you to just open your heart to the Holy Spirit and to the ever-present love that God is mediating to you. And I want you to just picture Jesus standing in front of you. You don't have to worry about the details. You, you don't have to get hooked up in what he looks like. But just imagine this loving presence of Jesus standing in front of you. And as you're looking at Jesus and Jesus is looking at you with love, I want you to ask Jesus this question. I want you to ask Jesus, Jesus, is there anything I am stuck in right now? Is there anything, Jesus, I am stuck in right now? And I want you to just listen and and listen to see if Jesus wants to say anything to you.
And just as you're thinking, you might have something you feel Jesus has, has talked to you about. You might have thought of something yourself. I want you to just imagine Jesus saying straight to you, I want you to hear him say to you, do you want to be free? Do you want to be free? And Jesus would say to each one of us, come, follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Come, follow me. I am the bread of life. Come to me and you'll never be hungry again. I am the living water. Come to me and you will never thirst again. Come follow me. Jesus, I pray for each one of us here this afternoon and our entire church community. I pray that we would have ears to hear every day your invitation to freedom. I pray that we would know that we are safe in you, that we are loved in you, that we find freedom in you, that we are known by you and you will always stand before us inviting us to come follow you. Would you just speak those gentle words over our community, Jesus, I pray, that we would see all of the spiritual life as an invitation to love, to freedom, and to following the footsteps of Jesus. So help us, Jesus, in all the ways that we're stuck. Help us to have eyes to see the places where we're enslaved, but we might think that we're free. Would you help us to know what real freedom looks like? And would you give us the hope and the imagination for what life in the kingdom of God is like here and now, today, that we would always have our eyes on you, Jesus, and our hope firmly in you. And I thank you, Jesus, for 
for your life, for your teachings, for your death and your resurrection, and that all our lives are hidden in you with God. Amen. And just to finish, Chris is going to come and play a song. Thanks, Chris. And we're going to come to the table. And um, <clears throat> might get you to break the bread again, Luke, and put the gloves on. COVID safe, communion. Sophie made the bread. It looks and smells amazing. We are all welcome at this table, whether we feel stuck or whether we feel free. And these symbols is the promise and the reality of our freedom. Just like in Passover where every year the Israelites would remember the Exodus coming out of Egypt coming from slavery out of Egypt to the promised land to freedom. And they would remember and they would break bread and they'd have glasses of wine and they'd tell the story and they'd tell the story again to remind one another that they're no longer enslaved but they're free. These are our symbols. This is our freedom. This is our Jesus. His body broken for us, for our freedom. His blood shed for us, for our freedom. And every time we eat and we drink, we remember and we remind ourselves that we're not on this journey alone, but we have Jesus with us. Because when we eat, we take him into us in a strange, unusual, digestive way (laughs) that is unexplainable, but it's grace and miracle and who knows what it is. But it's wonderful. So when you leave tonight with a bit of bread and some juice or port in your belly, you leave with a bit of Jesus. Not any more than when you came, but you've eaten and you've drunk and you've chewed and you've remembered and you're digesting this freedom that's yours. So as we come to the table tonight, I want you to come bearing in mind that if you felt Jesus say anything to you about being stuck, I want you to imagine coming with that stuckness and picking up these symbols of freedom and letting that stuckness be loosened a little bit by the grace of bread and the forgiveness of wine. And maybe as Chris plays the song, you might just like to pray, talk to Jesus, do a little bit of business. Let's come bringing our stuckness to the table and taking a bit of Jesus back with us as as a physical and tangible reminder of the invitation to follow and that we are not alone wherever we find ourselves, but Jesus is with us and he is our freedom. So Luke will break the bread and come and receive it. This end is port. This end is juice. Um... Chris can play a song. So come and grab your bits and um, maybe just come back and sit down and listen to the words of the song, talk to Jesus. And then when Chris is finished, we might eat and drink all together. Does that sound all right? So you can hold them in your hand and you can 
talk to Jesus. <laughs> let's let's come to the table. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Ha, ha, ha.